I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. I want to preach to you one more time from the 15th chapter of Genesis. And this time, however, I'm going to focus just on one verse in particular that is one of the most important verses in the Bible. And that is verse 6, where it states, Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. And I say this is an important verse because uh, verse 6 is explicitly quoted four times by three, uh, in three New Testament letters by two different authors, Paul in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 and James in the second chapter of his letter. Uh, they build their arguments around this particular verse, so it's very important. And the arguments they're making in each of those instances pertain to the most important question a person can ever ask him or herself. And that question is, how can I be in a right relationship with God? And Paul and James are using Genesis 15:6 to help them explain the good news that yes, it is possible to be in a right relationship with God through the mediation of Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, well, I, I know I'm right with God, I'm a believer, so this sermon doesn't pertain to me all that much. But I would disagree, and I would draw your attention to the audiences to whom Paul and James are writing in their letters when they quote Genesis 15:6. So Paul's writing to the Romans, and, and these guys in Rome uh, would be newer Christians, and Paul is taking the opportunity because he's never visited with them of laying out the gospel in very, very great detail. And he uses Genesis 15:6 to, to help him do that. But he, he writes to the Galatians, a different church, and they are a group of more mature believers. But their problem was that they were becoming legalistic. They were acting like salvation was based on how well they performed the law, particularly the ceremonial law. And so Paul, uh, Paul in explaining to them that they're wrong, that they shouldn't go in a legalistic direction, he uses Genesis 15:6 to prove his point. Now, the people to whom James was writing in James chapter 2 we're on the complete opposite end of the spectrum from the people to whom Paul was writing in Galatians. Instead of being legalists, they were, they were giving in to licentiousness. They were saying, oh, it's all about faith and what you believe and, and how you live and act doesn't matter at all. We've got license to do whatever we want to do and sin doesn't really matter. And James quotes Genesis 15:6 to help explain the gospel clearly to these people. So you've got... Young believers, you've got more mature believers who are struggling between legalism on one end and licentiousness on the other. And to be honest, we all do that. If we're believers, we, we tend to teeter, err in two ways. We either go too legalistic or too licentious, too, too, much, uh, too much freedom to sin and feel confident doing that. So what we see here by these different 
different uh, groups to whom Paul is quoting, and James is quoting Genesis 15:6, is that whatever our problem is, whether we're going to the legalist direction or you know, to, the, to the licentious direction, the problem that we have is a failure to apply the gospel in our lives. When faced with these problems, these New Testament apostles take the gospel and they apply it to them, whether they're legalist or licentious or new believers. You know, I've heard an author say it's not uh, the gospel. You know, sometimes people think, oh, I believe the gospel, and then that's, that's point A in the Christian life, and then we move on to point B and C and D and E and F, and that the gospel is point A, but then we, we move from that. But I would disagree. I would say the gospel is not just the A of the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to the Z of the Christian life. The gospel is always relevant to us. It's always applicable to us. And every failure we have is a failure to properly apply it in our lives and live in line with the truth of it. So we want to use this passage today to help help each one of us today to become better acquainted with the gospel so that we don't go in either direction, the errors of the Galatians or the errors of, the, of James's audience, or if we're not believers, to understand what the gospel is all about, if we're new believers, to, to deepen our faith. So there's something here for all of us today. So without further ado, let's jump into the first six verses of Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now just to give you the context, back in chapter 12, God has uh, called Abram out of worshiping other gods in, in a land called Ur of the Chaldees, way over on the other uh, far eastern side of where he's going to end up. And God said, look, I want you to leave everything behind, pack it all up, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to give you children. And I'm going to give you land. And you're going to be a blessing to the whole world. Well, he was already 75 years old when that happened. And now we're pushing on up, and he's getting really old. And nothing's happened. He's not gotten any land. He's not gotten any, had any children. And he certainly hadn't been a blessing to the nations. He's already made a curse on Pharaoh's house when he went down there and told some lies. And he's been at war in chapter 14 with a bunch of different nations, nation states that are surrounding him. So none of these things are happening. And so God is appearing to him. And he's asking him questions about it. You know, Lord, you've promised these things. What about it? And God reiterates the promises to him here in chapter 15. And Abram believes the Lord. And it tells us here that God credits it to him as righteousness. Now what does that mean? It was, it's such an important verse 
to Paul and James in the New Testament proving the gospel and pointing it out. What does it mean? There are three very important terms in verse 6 that I want to break down for you this morning. Now, understanding these three terms will take you very far in understanding why or why not you are in a right relationship with God. And the terms are, as you see on the piece of paper, hopefully you have an outline, righteousness counted and believed. Well, the first word I want to look at from verse 6 is righteousness. It is also, in some translations, in some other parts of the Bible, translated as justice. And it has several cognates, different forms of the word. Righteous, uh, just, justified, justification. These are all different words that are from the same base, basically, as they are in English. Uh, these, These terms are legal terms. It's very important to understand that, that this is a legal term. And it has moral implications, of course, as, as legal terms do. Righteousness is the concern of the three New Testament passages that we've been talking about, where verse 6 is quoted. And it's the most important term in Scripture because it's, the terms are used over 600 times in the Bible. So this term righteousness, right, uh, right, uh, righteousness, justified, justification, very important terms. Now, when you look it up on the Internet, if you just look up righteousness, uh, most of the websites, actually, I, I, never, I didn't go down the page, you know, and look, take too much time looking at it, but the first several pages of responses were all sites that had to do with Christianity. So righteousness is a word we tend to use at church. And it's not a word that we tend to use in our daily lives, unless we're hippies and we're like going, righteous dude, which has nothing to do with the real meaning of this word. Righteousness uh, is, as I said, a, a legal term. And the, and the only one of its forms that we use is the word right. Right. And boy, we use that word a lot these days. Our culture is obsessed with it right now. We're constantly debating on the news, on the internet, on Facebook, what is right and what is wrong. Now there was a time in the not-so-distant past where it was clear to everyone what was right and what was wrong. But now that relativism has taken hold that says the ridiculous statement that there is no such thing as absolute truth. You know, you do understand that that's an absurdity to say that. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Well, that, that statement is an absolute truth statement. So when you say that, there's no such thing as absolute truth, you're negating the very thing that you're doing. You're, you're stating an absolute truth by saying there is no absolute truth, and it becomes absurd, a logical absurdity. There is absolute truth. Things once universally considered wrong in our culture today are now called right. And another absurdity is that a person is condemned if they judge that something is right or wrong. 
which is absurdity because if you condemn someone, if someone comes to you and says, you are wrong for judging people, well, that is a judgment. You are judging that they're wrong for judging people. So again, a logical absurdity, but that is the culture in which we live. We've lost our moorings. Right and wrong no longer have any meaning. The most quoted Bible verse used to be John 3.16. Now it's judge not, lest you be judged. It's because we've rejected the law. An absolute standard, this, this idea of absolute truth. God's law, as Christians would say, is the absolute standard, the absolute truth. God's word, the absolute truth. You'll notice how difficult it is in our day and time in in the court system to get a conviction. It's very difficult these days because people don't know how to judge things. They don't know right from wrong. But let me tell you what's going to happen with all this relativism business. At the last day, when all humanity stands before the great judge... All those relativistic arguments are going to dissolve and disappear like tissue paper in fire. It's just going to disappear. The day of judgment is going to be the ultimate moment of sobriety. Americans, people in Western culture, are drunk on all their clever arguments about what is right, what is wrong, and don't judge me. But when we stand before the Lord on the last day and he opens the book, every argument, every protest will be silenced. The standard will be uh, seen to be what it is, God's standard, and we'll be standing before him. All humanity is under God's law. He's the creator. He made it that way and all humanity will answer for it. I've given you a verse on that list. Romans 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Everyone is under God's law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. On Judgment Day... The whole world is going to be held accountable to God and His standard. So, our relationship to God's law is of the utmost importance. So, righteousness. Righteousness means that you have never, ever broken God's law and you have always kept God's law. And there's a difference between breaking and keeping God's law. Breaking God's law means you do something that is forbidden by God. Keeping God's law is the positive side of that. It means you do what God has commanded. So to be righteous means that legally you have always kept the law. The law you have never violated it in your life ever. Not one millisecond of any day at any moment in time in thought, word, or deed, or even the attitude that you have. That leads Paul to say, Romans 3.20 that I've given you, by works of the law, 
no human being will be justified. That word justified is the same word as righteous, declared righteous. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law, doesn't any, the law only shows us our sin, shows us that we can't do it. That means that God is not going to look at you and say, you know, you're a pretty good person. Your goods outweigh your bads. And so you can go to heaven. That's never going to happen to anybody. See, this question is a legal question. Have you ever, during every millisecond of your existence, have you, in thought, word, deed, and attitude, ever broken God's law? Have you ever, or have you always, kept God's law in thought, word, deed, and attitude? If you think you have, then you don't know God's law, or you're delusional, one or the other. That's the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter, well, 2, 3, and so forth. He quotes several different passages. No one is good. No one is righteous. Not even one. Not naturally. We're, we're not born righteous. We don't continue to be righteous. This is the great human dilemma. How can unrighteous people, we all are, be right in right standing with this righteous God? Abram did. He, he, he did. You notice that verse 6 does not say that God looked at Abram's good life and counted it to him as righteousness. He didn't say, it does not say that God saw that Abram was righteous and counted it to him as righteousness. No. He was not righteous. We've, you've already seen it. Uh, chapter 13. He, he lied. We're going to see it next week when we look at chapter 16. The whole Hagar affair. He's not uh, always faithful to God's law, but here we see Abram is declared righteous. That brings us to the second term, very important term. So righteousness, a legal term. We are all unrighteous. Another way of saying that is we're sinners because we have broken God's law. People don't like to hear that, but it's the truth. And we need to hear it now, not later when it's too late. So, second term, counted. Righteousness was a legal term. Counted sometimes can be translated, or maybe translated, and if you have a different translation, reckoned or credited. This is an accounting term. A legal term, now we have an accounting term. Uh, my brother's an accountant. I think he would understand this even better than I do. Uh, but... I've got uh, bank accounts, so and most of you do too, so we can understand what he's talking about here. Credits and debit. Maybe you have a debit card. Maybe you have a credit card. What this term means, it means to keep records of accounts involving debits and credits. My bank will give me money for shopping at certain places like Starbucks or Sports Authority, and 
every month I'll get credited a few cents or maybe even a dollar or two that I didn't really earn because I don't go to these shops uh, because I want to especially get a discount because the discount's not very much. Uh, I just naturally you know, need to go to these places, to the grocery store or what have you, and it happens to be one of the stores that the bank is giving credit for. And so I'll notice on my bank statement that the bank has credited me with 35 cents or 9 cents. I really didn't earn it. I wish it was hundreds of dollars. Wouldn't that be great? But it's only pennies. But I didn't do anything special to earn it. It was credited to me. Now, in reality, I did do something to get it. So the illustration breaks down a little bit. But you understand what I'm talking about. To be credited with something, just given something freely, put in your account. Now, the problem that humans have is that they're unrighteous. And on their own, on our own, we only get debits in life. Sin is a debit for... You know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Even our good deeds, the Bible tells us, are like filthy rags. Even on our best days, our so-called goodness, our good deeds, are tainted with wrong motives and bad attitudes. If you put it in the terms of the two greatest commandments, uh, we do not love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. To, to fully obey that, we'd have to do it constantly, all the time, every day. Thought, word, deed, and attitude. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves every moment of every day in thought, word, deed, and attitude. We're just not righteous. We're in debt. In fact, we are in deep debt, spiritually speaking. Genesis 15:6 is telling us that Abram was credited with something which he did not earn. He is credited with righteousness. He has been credited with being righteous even though, like us, he was not righteous. And we'll see it again. Uh, we'll, we'll see again next week that he wasn't uh, righteous in the whole Genesis 16 affair, Hagar, Ishmael, etc. He breaks God's law, but still he's getting credited with righteousness. This tells us that there is hope in the midst of our human dilemma. Abram tells us that there is a way for unrighteous people to be credited with righteousness which in turn means we can have a relationship with God like Abram did. Abram was called a friend of God. We can be friends with God, even though, in reality, we're unrighteous. How does God credit that to us? That brings us to the third term, the final term, believed. Belief or faith. Faith was the instrument through which Abram was counted righteous. He believed God. Now, faith or belief is putting your faith or trust in something. You know, I sit in this chair. I'm putting my trust in that chair. I'm trusting it to hold me up. Right now, I'm standing up. I'm trusting in my legs to hold me up. Uh, I'm, I'm relying upon those things. That's faith. And the important thing in faith is the object of faith. What is your faith in? 
And what did Abram trust? He believed God. He trusted God. He did not trust in himself, in his own ability, in his own works. Paul explains it in Romans 4, and I've given you this passage. Tremendous. It begins in Romans 4.18. In hope, he believed against hope. So that's a little bit confusing, but in and of himself, Abram was without hope in reference to having children. It was a physical impossibility, as we'll see in a second. But God was giving him hope. We continue. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as, God, as he had been told, God had promised him, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was credited to him as righteousness. See, Abram did not trust in his own ability to fulfill God's promises. He's going to try in Genesis 16, and that's going to get him in trouble. But he was dead, in a sense. I mean, he was 100. You don't see a lot of 100-year-old men having babies. That's what Paul's saying. Not only was he too old to have babies, Sarah was barren. She did not have the ability to conceive a child. No ability whatsoever. Two strikes against him, really three strikes, humanly speaking. Two human beings physically incapable of producing children. But God promised something that gave him hope in the midst of real hopelessness. I mean hopelessness. You can't have children. It's impossible. But God said, you're going to. You're going to have a child. Your, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. And Abram believed him. See, Abram wasn't believing in his own ability. He was believing in God's promise. He did not have any ability. He could not make this happen. It had to be God to do it. And Abram believed that. He put his trust in God. And Abram is a pattern of faith for us. If you look at Romans 4 again, verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who has delivered, who has delivered us up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now God has not promised to give us children. That's not the promise that he's promised us. The promise that he's given us is the promise of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, in his life and death, has completed all righteousness. He, he's the only human being who ever lived who is righteous. He perfectly kept God's law. He never broke God's law. Every moment, every millisecond of his life, perfectly kept it. And... 
He died on the cross as a substitute. Perfect righteousness. So when we put our trust in him, in the prom- God says anybody who puts their trust in the Lord, who is united to Christ by faith, has his perfect record, perfect record of righteousness, and his death for their debts, pay the penalty of their sin, pay off their debts, that is credited, imputed, reckoned, counted to their account, to them. We believe God, the promise of the gospel, it will be credited to us as righteousness. See, because we, like Abram, we're dead. You know, we're not talking about being dead in the sense that we can't. We're dead in sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2 tells us. We cannot keep the law well enough to merit salvation. See, that would be putting our faith in ourselves, in my ability to be righteous. We can't be righteous. So we have to put our faith in something outside of ourselves. Luther called it an alien righteousness. A righteousness that's not our own. It's not something that we produce. It's outside of ourselves. It's alien to us. It's the righteousness of Christ credited to us. Reformed theologians call it forensic justification that we're talking about. You know, everybody likes CSI, right? And all these different versions of CSI. And those guys that uh, are featured in the show are forensic scientists. What does the word forensic mean? It means, pertains to legal, uh, the legal, you know, justice. These guys go to crime scenes and they investigate it and they do science to try to figure out who the criminal is. So it's forensic science. It's science for the cause of justice and, and for the legal system. Well, forensic justification is legal justification. We are declared by faith in Christ to be righteous, legal. We have, in, in a sense, we are uh, declared innocent of breaking the law. We are declared as those who have kept the law perfectly because Christ did it for us. We are putting our faith in what Christ did. The promise of the gospel that if we put our trust in him, that we will be saved. It's it's an abandonment of reliance upon self and reliance completely on what Christ did for us. I may have included uh, this question about justifying faith from the larger catechism. And this this just explains what I've tried to do today. Justifying faith, the faith that Abraham had, the faith that the gospel calls us to have, is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God. I hope the Spirit's working. I'm preaching to you the Word of God. Whereby, he being convinced of his sin and misery, I've tried to, tried to do that to you, show you that you're unrighteous, to convince you of your sin and misery, Try to convince you of the disability in yourself and all other creatures to recover you out of your lost condition. I'll try to show you that today. Not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, see, it's more than just saying, I believe that's true, but receiving it and resting upon it, 
upon Christ and His righteousness, therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of His person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. That's what, we're trying, that's what we need to do today. If you want to know if you're right with God, make Christ the object of your faith. Not your own good works, but Christ's good works. Christ's sacrificial death on your behalf. Paul quoted in Romans 3 that no one is righteous, not even one. He says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Uh, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's what Paul quotes, beginning of Romans 3. And then the psalmist goes on and he cries out, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Salvation for his people has come out of Zion. Christ provides it for unrighteous people like you and me. The Lord is offering to restore our fortunes that were lost in the fall of man, that we, we, we never had, to lay on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that we talked about in the call to worship. It's there for us. Who are you trusting in today? Where is your faith? What is the object of your faith? Be like Abram. Believe God and it will be credited to you as righteousness. Let's pray.